I am not the preacher that was spoken of in that video, uh, but I was taught by that preacher, <laughs> and I do plan on preaching God's word uh, this morning, uh, which is what we have done at Christ Community Church since the first day uh, that we met, and what, Lord willing, we will continue to do here, uh, because we do believe that it is his word that changes hearts, that changes um, cities, that changes history. Uh, so uh, pray with me, would you, as we uh, begin. Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, you would make our ears receptive to what you have to tell us this morning, that you would make uh, my mouth faithful uh, to proclaim it. Help us to understand, and not uh, merely just to understand, but to taste and see that you are good and to act upon what we hear, to live differently as a result. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this morning, if you'll follow along, uh, our passage is Psalm 145. You can find it in the Pew Bible in front of you on pages 524 through 525. Psalm 145. This is a song of praise written by King David. We're kind of going through this series uh, in 1 Samuel where we're looking at the life of David and we're just kind of getting to the point uh, where David comes on the scene in 1 Samuel. And interestingly enough, this is the point where David comes off the scene in the Psalms. This is David's final psalm that's recorded in the book of Psalms. If you know it all the way that the book of Psalms is organized, there's kind of five books within the book of Psalms. And really, the last 10 or so Psalms just kind of build on this crescendo of praise of God. And uh, some uh, commentators call it kind of a fireworks display of God's praise, you know, just one spectacular display after another. And this is kind of the final, final firework that David shoots off in the book of Psalms and then all kind of culminates in Psalm 150, which is just, you know, praise the Lord, everything in all creation. But we're going to look here at Psalm 145, and we will be going through it, so it'll be important for you to keep your Bible open as we look at it. Uh, We're speaking about worship this morning. Uh, It's something I'm interested in, obviously, because I help out with a worship ministry here at the church. Um, Worship, uh, meaning uh, enjoying the greatness of of the glory of God. It's the things that we've been singing about uh, this morning. And so it's natural as we speak about uh, what's great and what's glorious to think about uh, an IMAX movie. Maybe not totally natural, but... um so recently, I, I went to go see a Star Wars, one of the, like the new Star Wars movies in IMAX 3D. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but especially with like a movie like you know the Star Wars movie, it's absolutely, absolutely incredible. Uh, my friend Will Cooper's uh, a, a cameraman, uh, and so he understands kind of how these IMAX cameras work. But the beautiful thing about an IMAX camera is what they do is they take this image and then they kind of, uh, you know, they, they see it from all these different angles and then they put it back together and then you get these 3D glasses that kind of rearrange the image so you can enjoy it. And what happens is you're sitting in the theater and it feels like you're there. I mean, it feels like the image is just kind of jumping off the screen. But um, 
The problem with that is, as soon as you take off the glasses, I mean, the image gets distorted. The image kind of gets separated, you know, because the things that were meant to be seen all stacked on top of each other all together in their kind of true and glorious state are now separated. And you're not seeing different images, but you're seeing different aspects of the one image and they're not put together the way they're supposed to be. Now you might say, what in the world does this have to do with Psalm 145? Well, I'm going to tell you. Now, I would suggest to you that the reason so many of us in our daily lives fail to worship and enjoy God is because we do not see him in all his goodness, in all his greatness, in all his glory, as he's described to us in Scripture. What we do so often in our hearts, in our thinking, and in our ways of speaking about God, even in our churches sometimes, is we take this big, wild 3D image of God and we flatten him. And we kind of reduce him to one of his aspects. And so we might say things like this, well, I believe in a God of love. And that's it. Or I believe in a God of grace. And that's it. Or I believe in a God of mercy. Or I believe in a God of justice. I believe in a holy God. When the truth of the matter is, is that God is all of those things, all of the time, without division, without parts, without changing. He's infinite and eternal and unchangeable. So he's 100% good. He's 100% glorious. He's 100% truthful. He's 100% just all the time, 24-7, 365, from eternity past to eternity present. And so what David is trying to show us this morning is he's trying to get us to put on the kind of you know, 3D glasses of Scripture, if you will, to kind of dive the metaphor into the ground. To see... God, as he is truly described, to stack these different aspects of his greatness on top of each other so that we can really see and behold him as he truly is. And then David is telling us only then when we see the wideness of God's mercy, when we see the greatness of God's goodness, will we worship him? Will our hearts be truly satisfied in him? And brothers and sisters, if our hearts do not find satisfaction in God, be assured that they will seek satisfaction in a thousand different other places. Now, I would suggest to you that that the reason why you got in a fight with your spouse or your roommate or your parents or your children, the reason why you're frustrated at work the reason why you're frustrated at school, the reason why you're afraid of the future is because you are not worshiping God. You're worshiping something else. Your heart is seeking to find satisfaction in something that is not satisfying, that is not delivering. And so what David wants to show us this morning is how to seek satisfaction in the one supremely satisfying thing in all of creation, the thing that you were made to enjoy the one truly good and beautiful thing, God himself. And he's going to show us how to do that, again, by looking at the greatness of God's goodness and kind of stacking these three different aspects, not three parts, right? Because God doesn't have parts. You can't piece God out. Three aspects of the one thing that is God's character, And he's going to look at God's goodness from these three different sides. First, we're going to see that God's goodness is universal. 
Next, we're going to see that God's goodness is particular. And finally, we're going to see that God's goodness is just. So first, uh, God's goodness is universal. Just look, if you will, verses uh, 13 through 17 in Psalm 145. And just notice the language. Look at the, the breadth, the kind of the scope, the, uh, the universality, if you want to make up a word, I think, of God's care for his creation. Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. No beginning or end. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. It will never fade. It will never perish. It will never rust. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Could it get any wider? Could it get any more universal? What David is speaking about here is something that people throughout history have called God's common grace. Not common because it's, you know, not valuable, but common because he distributes it freely to every living person on the face of the planet. God's common care, the goodness that he extends to every living man, woman, child, and animal, and plant, and rock. God is good to all, period. There is nobody that God is not good to. And this is not just what David is saying. Listen to what uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 45. Jesus is saying, hey, this is what your father in heaven does. Listen to this. Your father in heaven, he makes his son rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God God does not discriminate when he sends rain and sunshine and all kinds of blessings. The picture here is of a generous and an open-handed God, a God who's not stingy with his care. He's not stingy with his provision. Remember this, and just think about this for, for a second. All of the human beings on the planet, every living being on the planet, if anyone on earth today enjoys any kind of blessing, any kind of pleasure, sees any kind of beauty, It was because God gave that to them graciously. When someone on the other side of the globe today wakes up and finds the sun shining on them and has food in their pantry and they have good work to do and they have friendships to enjoy, where does that come from? It came from God's fatherly hand. He is being generous to them. When even those who don't believe in God, when they make wise and just decisions, in governments, or in business, which they do. When they make good decisions, when they make wise choices. When artists compose beautiful works of music or art. When, when let's say, a, a Hindu architect designs a building that's built well. Uh, when a Buddhist mother cares for her children and she parents them with love and affection. Where did that come from? How did that happen? It's because of this universal common grace of God. He allows us to do that. He allows those who don't believe in him to do those things, to enjoy blessings in this life because he does good to all, even to those who don't believe. That's amazing. How gracious is he? 
How generous is he? God is concerned with the welfare of all of mankind. One, one person has said this, there's no square inch of God's creation that he doesn't look at and say, that is mine, that belongs to me. And there is no human being that has ever been born in the history of the world that is not stamped with God's image. And so he looks at that image. He has mercy on that image. He cares for that image. And that image in people reflects God's goodness, reflects his grace, reflects his justice, reflects his beauty, reflects his truth. It can't help but do that. No matter how that image is is tainted or tarnished or distorted, We can't help but think good and do good, even in part because of the image of God in us. God cares universally about every person on this earth. That's what David is telling us. If there's someone on this earth who is hungry today, God cares. If there's someone on this earth who is faint-hearted, who is uh, falling down, God cares. And if they get lifted up, it's because God lifted them up. Now, but this is not the the final word, obviously, on God's love. Uh, His care and his goodness isn't just global and universal. There's something even greater, I would argue, and David would argue, and the Bible would argue. (laughs) There's something even greater. It's a deeper love that he shows to his people. Now, there is a sense in which God is, is um, the father of all mankind. We may say that, that he's the father of all mankind in the sense that he is the creator of all mankind. But there's an even deeper sense in which the Bible teaches us that while he is the creator of all and the Lord of all, he is the father only of his children, of his people, because God's goodness isn't just universal, God's goodness is also particular. Now look in uh, verses uh, 17 through 19. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. He's kind in all his works. Again, that's that universality. But look, the Lord is near to who? All who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. He f- fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. This is what scripture says God does for his particular people. David is speaking here of the love that God specially gives to believers, to his people, to his covenant people, to uh, the church, we would say in the New Testament. God has pledged himself to them. He is their redeemer. He is the redeemer of Believers of his particular people. And this kind of particular nature of God's love has been true all throughout the Bible. Right? He calls Abraham. He calls, um, he calls Noah. He calls Daniel in Babylon. God has always called a particular people out of this mass of people to say, you are my special people. I'm going to put my image in a special way in you. I'm going to be especially gracious to you, Abraham, Moses, David, nation of Israel, the church. And the way he does this is he allows them to call on him in truth. As it says in verse 18, he he allows them to call on him as he has really revealed himself to them. In the Old Testament, he gives them his name. 
His covenant name, Yahweh, or Lord, or some old translations call it Jehovah. It all just means the same thing. It's just a way of saying Yahovah, uh, this, this uh, word uh, that Jewish people find, find so um, holy. <laughs> that I remember there, there was this girl that was in a religion class with me in, uh, in college, and, and she was a, a Jewish woman. And, and she wouldn't even write God's name. <laughs> she wouldn't write the word God. She'd write G, you know, hyphen D, or L hyphen, you know, hyphen D. Because she said, God's name is so special. He's gave it particularly to his people. I don't kind of use it in a, in a common way like that. And that's remarkable. But now in the New Testament, God has given us a new name. God has not only given us the name of Jesus Christ by which we can call on him and know him and see him, he's also uniquely given us the title Father. Father is the Christian name for God. No other religion calls their God Father. And so we can call on God in truth by calling him by his name, by calling him Father. His love, in verse 19 and 20, you see his love, his goodness is seen in that he hears and saves and preserves those who call on him, fear him, and love him. This is is covenant love. Uh, God has pledged himself in a particular way to his people. In the Old Testament, God says, those who bless me, I will bless. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Paul says. That kind of calling and God's response, that's covenant language. That's this reciprocal language. For those who believe, for those who come to me, for those who who I have chosen, those those are my people. Now, this kind of particular love for God might be hard for us to get our our hands around. Um, It might be hard to to think about, but I want to give you a brief illustration. You know, I I love all kinds of people. I I, I love, if I've met you, I I, I probably love you. my wife says that I'm like a little bit too free with uh, my friendship, a little fr- too free with my affection. She says, if, if I have um, spoken with anyone for a minimum of, of five minutes, that's about all it takes. And then thereafter, in conversation, if I ever speak of you, I will say, you know, my friend Bill or my friend Tom, you know, um, my friend Paul, or I might even say my good friend Will, my good friend George. <laughs> And this is, I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily a good thing. <laughs> uh, I, I Probably it's just because I want to be liked by people. But I think part of it is, is I really do like a lot of different people. I really do enjoy all kinds of different people. But my, the broadness of my enjoyment of people, the broadness of my love for people, doesn't keep me from having a particular love, a narrow love, a special love for a particular person, my wife Shauna. And... If I said, well, you know, Shauna, I mean, my love is great. I love many different people. There's all kinds of different men and women that, that, I, that I enjoy. And, you know, I don't want to discriminate at all in my love. She would say, that's awful. That's horrible. That's unjust. Why? Because I've made a covenant with her. I have pledged myself to love her and care for her and enjoy her and cherish her specially more than anyone else. It would be a violation of my covenant to not love her particularly, to not love her specially. In the same way, God has made a covenant with a particular people. And the fact that he loves them deeply, that he loves them specially, that he loves them specifically, does not diminish his love. 
makes his love even more intense, even more strong, even more unbelievable, even more unshakable. That's how he loves his people. Now, we need to hold both of these things together. We need to stack them on top of each other. God's, the, the wideness of God's love and also the kind of the narrowness, the particularness of God's kind of choosing a covenant love for his people because that's what the Bible does. But there's one other aspect of God's love that David touches on here that if we don't bring this in, if we don't stack this on top with the rest, we're gonna miss the full picture and we're gonna actually miss the glory of God as he really is. Because God's goodness isn't just universal. God's goodness isn't just particular. God's goodness is also just. David reminds us, I'm sure you saw it in the second half of verse 20, that God's goodness reveals itself even in the judgment of evil and wickedness. God is gracious, loving, kind, and holy. He does and he will punish sin. Every sin. Verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Now you might be thinking that's a bummer. You might be thinking that doesn't make any sense. How can David put those two things together? And I I would understand And I've talked to people uh, who would say, I don't think a God like that, a God who destroys the wicked, a God who judges evil, is a good God. That's not a God I want to worship. But I, I, I want to show you briefly that I think if you truly love something, you can't help but be angry at the evil that threatens it and destroys it and distorts it. For example, if you love someone, if you really love someone, um, think of someone that you care about. Um, A friend, a family member, a child. They're breaking the law. They're not just breaking the law, they're harming themselves. Maybe they're caught up in an addiction. They're harming other people. They're causing pain. They're kind of sowing evil in the world. If you see them doing that, you're grieved by it. If you're not grieved by it, you don't really love them. To the degree that you love them, you're troubled by it. You're bothered by it. And you want it to stop, right? Now, if you love them and you're powerful... If you love them and you're, you're in some kind of position of authority where you can do something, what do you do? You do something. If you can step in, if you can stop them hurting themselves, stop them hurting other people, stop them destroying their lives, you stop them. You try to, right? And if you don't step in, you don't really love them. Or you're a coward, which could also be the case. I've been guilty of that myself. But maybe, let's say, the reason you don't stop them, the reason you don't step in, the reason you don't render a judgment, render a verdict, is because you don't feel like you're the one in control. You don't feel like you're the one in charge. So you say, well, maybe it's someone else's job, so I'll refer them to the authorities. I'll I'll grant you that. 
But what if you are the authorities? <laughs> what if you, you take that person to the judge? What if you take that person to jail and the judge says, you know, I'm bothered by this. I can see they're destroying themselves. I can see they're making the world a more wicked place, a more evil place, a more painful place, a more lonely place. But who am I to judge? You would say, you're the judge. You're supposed to judge. <laughs> who is it, whose job is it to judge if not God? God is the ultimate judge. He's ultimately loving. He's ultimately good. And it is his job to punish evil. If he didn't, he would either not be good, he would not be loving, or he'd not be in control. And he's all of those things all of the time. Listen, listen to this. This is uh, maybe a, a good perspective for us, kind of from the other side of the veil. This is the perspective of heaven, Revelation 6. It says, when, when he opened the fifth seal, this is, um, you know, the lamb is opening the seals here in Revelation 6. John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. People who had been killed in this world. People who had, done, had had evil done to them. And this is what they are crying out with a loud voice. Sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? From the perspective of heaven, it's crying out for God to judge crying out for God to put an end to the wickedness that's destroying creation. It's God's job to judge. And so because he's loving, because he's good, he judges. And we have to see that God's justice isn't opposed to his love, right? It's not like some kind of paradox where you go, oh, it's two things that don't, they contradict each other, but we hold them together. No, it does not contradict each other. God's justice is God's goodness. In Exodus 34, Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. Show me what you're really like. As much as possible, God, I want to worship you. I want to have a sight of your glory. And God says, here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to have my goodness pass before you. And I'm going to protect you because you can't see the face of the Lord and live, but I'm going to let my goodness pass in front of you. And so God's goodness passes in front of Moses, and this is what he says. God says, as his goodness passes before Moses, he proclaims his goodness to him, and this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's what God's goodness looks like, all of it. And it's here, when we kind of sit with that, that God's goodness means the wicked he destroys. He will not clear the guilty. And we go, what hope is there for us? Because God is saying he will never clear the guilty. God only shows his love, his forgiveness, his special mercy and compassion on those who are no longer guilty. But I think if we look carefully, we'll see that what God is actually saying here is something beautiful, is something hopeful. He is saying, Moses, I am one day going to send my only son into the world. Because I want to be merciful. 
I want to be gracious. I am compassionate and I will put my son into the world and I will put the guilt on him. I will punish him and then the guilt will be removed and I will be compassionate and merciful and gracious to them and I will forgive all of their sins. But Moses, this is the only way. The guilt must be taken away. So how can God be both just and good to all? and also merciful. How can he love the guilty? What hope is there for a sinner, for a wicked person? The hope's only in Jesus. Only in Jesus do we see the righteousness, the justice, the mercy, and the compassion of God all stacked on top of one another. In Christ, through his sacrificial sin-atoning death, God is both just and the justifier of those who believe. And if we see that, if we really see that, what are we going to do? Just two minutes. Here are a couple points of application. We will do three things if we really see this. Verses four, five, and six, we will declare it. One to another. One generation will declare the works of God to another. They will proclaim his mighty deeds. Parents, this is you. One generation telling another generation what God has done for them. But the church Everyone in this church, this is your responsibility also. I mean, that's, that's why we volunteer in the nursery. That's why we, we help out with VBS. That's why we're going to bring uh, children up here in the next service uh, to, to become communing members of the church because it's all of our responsibility to pass this deposit on to the next generation, that we should speak these things to the next generation. We must speak of God's goodness. Next, we must meditate on God's goodness. We must think about it. Verse five, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Meditation means this, this constant kind of chewing um, on something, kind of like a cow chews its cud. You know, it just is like kind of running it around in its mouth all day. That's what the, the Hebrew word meditate means. It's just kind of sitting with you all day. So you're thinking about the gospel. You're thinking about God's love for you. You're thinking about his goodness and you're drawing nourishment from it all day along. I mean, you think about all kinds of things <laughs> throughout your day. And God is saying, if, if you, you love me, if you really see me as I am, you will think throughout your day, not, not just in the morning in your private prayers, but at work, in the car, while you eat and drink and play, you, my gospel will be in your mind. It'll be on your mind, and you'll be able to draw nourishment from it. And finally, we must celebrate it. This is a verse 7 in the NIV. They celebrate your abundant goodness, and they joyfully sing of your righteousness. We are commanded to celebrate God's goodness with joy. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of, of trials, a Christian who has seen God knows the secret of celebration. And it is this. God has counted all of your badness on Jesus. And he has counted all of his goodness onto you. And he has given you an inheritance that will never spoil or fade and never diminish. It will never be taken away from you. And he has promised his Holy Spirit to you. He has given you his Holy Spirit to help you change. And he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so if you believe those things, you have reason to be joyful. You have reason to celebrate so that we know that even though weeping may last for a night, joy, real joy, comes in the morning for Christians. 
we have much to celebrate. And that's really what, what communion is. It's all three of these things. Communion is a way of declaring what God has done. It's a way of speaking about God's mercy. It's a way of speaking about the gospel to one another. It's a way of meditating on God's works. Uh, when we come, when, when we sit and reflect, when we think, when we remember what Jesus did, uh, we're, we're meditating on his goodness. And finally, it's a way of celebrating. I mean, th- this is a feast. This is a family meal. And God commands us to celebrate it with glad and joyful hearts. So on the night when Jesus was about to be betrayed, when he was about to take away the guilt, he, he took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. Whenever you do this, and whenever you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, uh, he took the cup and he poured out the wine. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood that I'm pouring out for you to bring the wicked in to be just and compassionate and merciful. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And so I want to invite you to come and to celebrate, to remember, to declare God's goodness. And this is a covenant meal for God's covenant people. This isn't the, the Christ community meal for Christ community people. So if you belong to another church, if you're, if you're a believer, if you've embraced that special love of God for those who cry out to him, well then, uh, you're welcome to come and eat and drink and we even have gluten-free wafers for you. But, it, but if you haven't cried out to God, if you don't know yet, if you believe, then I would encourage you to just sit and think. Meditate on, on, on what God has done. Meditate on the offer of Christ to take away your guilt. And then maybe talk to one of us. Uh, we'd love to, to pray with you. We'd love to explain the gospel to you more. We'd love to talk about what it means to follow Jesus so then you could come and celebrate with us when we eat this meal next. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these ordinary elements, uh, bread and wine, and that through them we can remember you. We can meditate on your gospel. We can declare your glory. And we can celebrate what you've done for us. Lord, would you help us to feed on you in our hearts by faith this morning. In your name, amen.